Hello, everybody. This is John Allen. I am the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We're online at cruxanow.com. Also the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort of raid the journalism refrigerator, take out some stories that are a few days old, but still good, sprinkle over some, some spice and some secret Crux brand sauce, and serve it up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, earthquake in America. The United States Supreme Court, by a narrow 5-4 to four vote, overturns the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. I'm going to try to supply some perspective about what comes next, rooted of all things, in a fairly obscure chapter in 19th century papal history. Bear with me. I promise you there is a point. Next, the Pious Wars are back. Debates over the legacy of the wartime Pope Pius XII and his alleged silence on the Holocaust are back with a vengeance due to a new book by distinguished historian David Kurtzer, which has been accompanied by a kind of surprisingly aggressive degree of Vatican pushback. We're going to try to figure out what is going on there. Third, Oh, Canada! Pope Francis, despite his lingering knee issues, confirms his July 24th to the 30th trip to Canada. Assuming the pontiff is able to make it, it is a keenly anticipated voyage, above all because of the painful legacy of abuse of indigenous persons in Canada. And then finally, we will end today with two quick updates on stories we have already discussed on this program. We'll get the latest from the Vatican's trial of the century, which now looks like it may be the trial of several centuries. We'll explain why. And we will also look at Much Ado About Verona, my favorite mixed Shakespeare metaphor, where the mayor's race has ended in a surprising victory for the guy you might consider the Pope Francis candidate. All that and more is waiting for you this week. So please, for the love of God, don't go anywhere. Stick around. All right, well, listen, happy Tuesday to you. We begin this week with the massive news, although not unexpected, out of the United States, that the Supreme Court has effectively overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. Now, as I say, this was to some extent expected because a draft of this decision had leaked out some time ago. And so, in a sense, we kind of all knew this was coming, but it is now official. The final decision was not terribly different from that leaked draft. Without getting too far down into the weeds, I suppose the most important point is that the Supreme Court has not held that abortion is illegal. It has simply held that there is no constitutional right to abortion. So what this does is, in effect, take the battleground over abortion policy out of the courtroom and put it into the legislature and the ballot box. Immediately, a number of states already had laws in the books which went back into effect, making abortion illegal. Others are scrambling not only to codify existing law, but in many cases to expand it. The forecast, the short-term forecast anyway, is for great political turbulence, this is likely to be a driving issue in midterm elections later this year. Frankly, it could be a driving issue in American politics for at least the next generation. 
So far, the American bishops are trying not to come off as overly triumphalistic about all of this, claiming this as a great Catholic victory. Instead, many of them are emphasizing the need for a kind of comprehensive approach to the pro-life issue, that it's not merely enough to ban abortion, but it is also important to support pregnant women, to support families, to support children, and are warning that there is a great deal of work yet to do. So we will see how all this plays out politically. Most observers are saying some states are going to clamp down on abortion, some states are going to expand it, others, this is going to be a political football Policy will depend on a razor-thin margin between who's in power and who's out of power. The result is we are likely going to be in for a stretch of chaos, confusion, and tumult. Now, all of that, the angst that that situation is likely to create, may induce in some pro-lifers, some and some Catholics who are often the same people, may introduce in them a kind of nostalgia for what could seem a simpler time in which the church didn't have to go to a court or to a ballot box or to a referendum and make its case against abortion and other moral evils, but it could simply impose these things as a matter of law because the church possessed both spiritual but also temporal power. Now, as fate would have it, as this news was breaking on Friday, my wife and I were in a car. We were listening to the BBC, of all places, on our way to the southern Italian sort of port and beach city of Gaeta. It's about two hours or so south of Rome. Popular getaway for Italians during the summer months because it's got a beautiful beach and nice, clear, cool water and, and all of that. I, however, wanted to go to Gaeta for a slightly nerdier reason because it was also the site of the very last time that a pope was forced to flee Rome ahead of an angry mob. Now, this has happened many times over the course of the centuries, but the last time it happened was in 1848. The pope in question was Pio Nono, as the Italians would say, Pope Pius IX, the last of the pope kings, that is, the last of the popes to rule over a swath of central Italy known as the Papal States. In 1848, there was a popular insurrection in the city of Rome. It was driven by Pope Pius IX's refusal to go to war against Austria, which revolutionaries in Rome took as a sign that the Pope was siding with the Anshan regime against the forces of sort of the unification of Italy and new democratic republican government and so on. So anyway, mob formed the Pope's lay prime minister, a guy by the name of Pellegrino Rossi, was assassinated by this mob on the steps of a pontifical palace in mid-November. Pope saw the handwriting on the wall and decided it was high time to get out of there. So in kind of cloak and dagger fashion, disguising himself as a simple country priest, he got on into a horse-drawn carriage owned by the Bavarian ambassador to the Holy See, and under the cover of darkness, got out of Rome and went to Gaeta, where he proceeded to spend essentially the next 18 months in exile. It wasn't always in Gaeta. He bounced around a little bit, but Gaeta was the principal residence. This is known as the flight to Gaeta in the annals of papal history. What's the moral of the story? Oh, and by the way, when we were in Gaeta, 
we retraced all of his steps. So we found the place he stayed his first night. We found the royal residence that he stayed in for the rest of his time. Most importantly, we went to this place, this chapel. It's called the Capella d'Oro, the Golden Chapel, where Pope Pius IX loved to pray when he was in Gaeta. And it is apparently where he conceived the inspiration, or where he re received the inspiration, rather, to declare the dogma of Mary's Immaculate Conception. All right, what is the moral of the story here? Well, the moral of the story is that during the era of, of Pope Pius IX, and frankly, for many centuries before that, popes, at least theoretically, possessed the power to impose Catholic moral teaching by the force of law, and they did. What did that generate? Well, what that often generated was tremendous resentments against what was perceived as theocracy, clerical arrogance, and essentially dictatorial rule. And that generated tremendous backlash that quite often forced popes into exile and also meant that the fortunes of the Catholic Church were sort of held hostage to the broader political currents of the day. Now, today, the church doesn't have that kind of power. The church has to persuade rather than impose, although there are some critics who will tell you that there are echoes of that old lust to impose in today's abortion debates. On the right, there are some who would like to see pro-choice Catholic politicians denied communion, which some, well, those critics anyway, would see as an effort to rule by decree. On the left, there are those who would like to see Pope Francis make heads roll among conservative bishops who dare talk about this sort of thing and want to see the long arm of papal rule come down and, you know, sort of knock those guys about the head and shoulders. The truth of it is, what Gaeta, the lesson of Gaeta, I think, is that every time the church falls back on power rather than persuasion, it does not end well. It ends in uprisings and tumult and bloodshed, either literal or metaphorical. It ends in division and paralysis and often a kind of exile position for the church and its leadership. So, look, is this democratic chaos that is likely to follow the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, is that going to be a rough ride? You bet it is. And no matter what side of these debates you're on, the next little while is going to be a maddening mix of success and failure, of elation and heartbreak. Question is, is it still better than the alternative? And I would suggest that the lesson of Gaeta is probably so. All right, next, the Pious Wars. So for a long time, there has been this historical debate about whether Pope Pius XII, who governed the church, from 1939 through the end of the Second World War, whether he did enough to denounce the, the Holocaust and the other crimes of the Nazis during the war. Of course, in the 1960s, an infamous play came out called The Deputy, which accused Pius XII of essentially being complicit in the Holocaust. English journalist John Corwell did a famous book called Hitler's Pope that made essentially the same. Bill of Indictment. Now we have a new book from historian David Kurtzer, which is based upon newly opened archival material, Vatican archival material from the Second World War, 
Pope Francis, some time ago, had asked that this material be opened. It was opened to researchers in 2020. Kurtzer was one of the researchers who had access to this material. And on the basis of it, he believes he has found additional information that essentially suggests that Pope Pius XII decided to prioritize the, the privileges of the church over moral condemnation of the Nazis. Among other things, Kurtzer believes that he has found evidence of secret negotiations between Pius XII and Hitler in 1939 and 1940 to try to reach a kind of deal. He also cites what he describes as Pius XII's lackluster response to the roundup of Roman Jews in October 1943. And in all, the, the picture he paints is of a pope who did not really rise to the moral demands of the time, but was instead operating out of an old model in which it was the institutional interests of the church which were his primary responsibility. Now, as I say, these arguments in different versions have been around a long time. Other scholars contest them vigorously. And usually, when they do, the Vatican gives them quite a platform. The thing is, however, that all that seemed to die down a great deal with the election of Pope Francis. I mean, this pushback was very strong during the John Paul and Benedict XVI years when there seemed the live possibility that Pius XII might actually be edified and canonized, that is, declared a saint. However, all that seemed to be put on hold under Pope Francis, and these debates in many ways seemed to die down. Yet, with this new Kurtzer book, there is, once again, a remarkable degree of pushback. L'Osservatore Romano carried a long piece from one of Italy's most distinguished historians and experts on foreign relations, who has studied this period of time, arguing, basically, that Kurtzer has it wrong. First of all, the secret negotiations that Kurtzer is talking about, this, this other scholar is saying, actually were described in routine diplomatic correspondence at the time, so they weren't really all that secret. And in any event, they never came to anything because pious imposed conditions having to do with the freedom of the church and so on that Hitler would never agree to. So never happened. So there was no deal. He even claims to have caught Kurtzer in a very basic error with regard to the roundup of Roman Jews in October 1943. Kurtzer says that the American envoy to Pius XII at that time, a guy by the name of Harold Tittman, had a meeting with Pope Pius just a couple days afterwards, and Pius didn't say anything. Well, this other scholar points out the meeting actually happened three days before the roundup, not two days after. So, of course, Pius wouldn't respond to something that hadn't happened yet. Now, look, you know, oh, and by the way, we should also note that at the same time, the Vatican has released a digitalized version of all of those archives it opened back in 2020 which came just 24 hours after an excerpt from Kurtzer's new book appeared in the Atlantic magazine. And again, this is intended to project an image of kind of transparency and wanting to get to the truth. Now, how do we explain the fact that Francis's Vatican didn't really want to seem to engage in the pious wars until right now? Like, why now, right? Well, for one thing, we didn't have Kurtzer's book until now, right? But there may be another factor here, which is, what is it that Pope Pius is criticized for? Well, basically, sort of placating a dictator in an attempt not to make things worse and to especially not make things worse for the church. 
Well, what are some people accusing Pope Francis of right now with regard to the war in Ukraine? Well, his critics would say he is excessively placating a dictator out of a misguided effort not to make things worse and to protect the interests of Christianity, at least, and perhaps in particular, the Catholic community in Ukraine and other territories that are under Russian influence. I mean, in other words, there are some eerie parallels. And I think there are probably some about Pope Francis who worry that someday somebody like Cornwall might do a Putin's Pope book about Francis in the same way that Cornwall did Hitler's Pope about Pius XII. So in a sense, in defending Pius XII, you know, during the Second World War, the Vatican is also defending Pope Francis today. It will be fascinating to watch that play out. All right. Oh, Canada. Now, you will remember that Pope Francis recently canceled a planned journey to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo, citing health issues, mostly ongoing difficulties with osteoarthritis in his right knee, that it has made it difficult for the Pope to move and stand. Of course, we have now become accustomed to see the Pope appear in public in a wheelchair, using a cane, on the Popemobile, and in other venues in which, well, he doesn't have to walk or stand. However, despite all that, the Pope still appears determined to go ahead with this trip to Canada. We don't have any word yet as to whether Pope Francis has sort of knuckled under and accepted the advice of his medical team that what he really needs is knee surgery to deal with this problem once and for all. Don't know. But well, what we do know is that the Pope still wants to go. Now, if this trip can happen, it will be extraordinarily important First of all, any trip, any papal trip to North America is important, just for obvious reasons. But beyond that, Pope Francis will be going primarily to deal with a very painful legacy of the abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, even what you might call cultural abuse, of indigenous persons in Canada, and in particular at church-run residential schools. Recent discoveries regarding unmarked graves at residential schools and, and other revelations about the kinds of things that went on have shocked the conscience of the entire nation and also galvanized, understandably, a great deal of protest and activism among indigenous communities. When Pope Francis is in the country, he is going to start in English-speaking Canada in Edmonton, where he is going to visit a town a little bit to the north, Masquachis which is a largely indigenous community. He will meet with indigenous there. He will also meet with indigenous in Edmonton. Then he will be going to Quebec, representing French-speaking Canada. And then he will end up in Iqaluit, which is in the, the far east and north of Canada. And again, a largely indigenous community and population. So running like a scarlet thread through this trip is the idea of outreach and to be frank, apology to Canada's indigenous persons for the abuse they suffered, not merely at the hand of the church, but certainly in a big way at the hands of the church. Now, it should be said that there are keen expectations that this trip isn't simply going to be a one-off photo op, but that's going to trigger a longer-term process of reconciliation that would involve principally two pillars, one would be a thorough opening of the archives of the church to establish the truth about what happened to indigenous persons when they were placed in the care of the church. The other is some kind of financial reparation. 
and there is a great expectation on the part of these indigenous communities that the Pope's time in Canada is going to kickstart that. If it doesn't, if it doesn't in fairly short order lead to progress on those two fronts, it could well be that this trip will set up the church for disappointment and the Pope for additional heartburn as he has to try to put out these fires. Obviously, we will have full coverage of the trip on the crux site. Finally, we end this week with a couple of just quick updates. We have talked often on this show about the Vatican's so-called trial of the century, this mega trial involving 10 different defendants and centering on this failed $400 million real estate deal in London in which the Vatican took a bath to the tune of somewhere around 170, 180 million at the end. We don't have precise figures yet. 10 different people have been charged with various forms of fraud, graft, embezzlement, including for the first time, a cardinal of the church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Beccio. Now, this trial has been going on since last summer. We're basically a year into it now. The court so far has heard from roughly 10 witnesses. At its most recent hearing this past week, presiding judge Giuseppe Pignatone announced that between additional witnesses the prosecution wants to call and additional witnesses the defense lawyers want to call, bear in mind, 10 defendants, that means 30 defense lawyers are involved in this thing. So amid all of that, the court has about 200, no, you did not mishear that, 200 additional witnesses to hear from. Now, if it's taken them a year to get to 10, do the math. The interesting question isn't so much, will this trial still be going on when this papacy ends? It may be, will this trial still be going on when the next one ends? You know, we will see. And we will see whether Pope Francis, who is, of course, not only the chief executive, but also the head of the judiciary, at some point just decides to cut his losses and say, as the Italians would put it, basta, that's enough. All right, finally, we've talked before here on the air about the mayor's race in Verona, which pits a former soccer player for the Roma team, that's, of course, my team, who was on the team the last time they won the Italian National Championship, nicknamed the altar boy because he is very close to the church, very inspired by what you might call peace and justice, social justice priests in Italy, very much a Pope Francis guy, faithful mass-going Catholic. He and his wife have six kids. Pits him not only against conservative opponent in Verona, but maybe even more so against the local bishop, Bishop Giuseppe Zenti, who had said that a Catholic cannot vote for a leftist candidate. He didn't name Damiano Tomasi specifically, but that's clearly who he had in mind, saying you can't vote for a center-left candidate because of their positions on same-sex unions, gay marriage, euthanasia, abortion, etc. Well, on Sunday, the Veronese went to the polls, it was actually expected that Tomasi, the Pope Francis guy, probably would lose because the three top finishers in the first round, it was Tomasi for the left, and then two conservative candidates who split about 60% of the vote. So had they been able to get their act together, clearly they could have won. But they couldn't. They basically were at each other's throats. By default, therefore, Tomasi ended up with about 53% of the vote and will now be the duly elected mayor. So, you know, if, if you were looking at this, as many Italians were, as a kind of showdown between, what, a Pope Francis church versus a kind of more old-school Cardinal Camillo Romini, Pope John Paul II version of church, then what we can say, at least, is that in the setting of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, 
for one day, anyway, the Pope Francis agenda won out. It was close, but the Pope Francis agenda won. All right, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. Please be with us. In the meantime, first of all, it's towards the end of June. We're almost in July, folks. Stay cool. Beyond staying cool, stay safe, stay healthy. Have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.